Today's guest has had a myriad of interesting and wonderful experiences in the media. We're going to meet him in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. I am pleased to introduce to you Keith Morgan, who began working at ABC News in Washington, D.C. in 1982. Keith Morgan, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. Keith, you sort of took yourself through the complicated world of broadcast engineering. Um, I'd like to hear more about that, but for right now, I'd like to hear about your educational preparation for this job. You attended Howard University in Washington, D.C. What did you study? Uh, I actually studied uh, radio, TV, and film. Uh, it was my major. And then uh, in 1992, I went back to finish my degree, and I'm, I added a minor of computer science because that's when computers really started to take off at that point. And um, I had a good background in computers from working with my Atari computer and some other uh, computer-related equipment that came along at that point in time. Why radio, TV, and film? Was that a popular field of study when you chose to pursue it? No, actually, it's kind of weird how I got that direction. Um, I was at Northwestern High School, and in the middle of my junior year, I got bused to um, High Point High School in Beltsville. And High Point had an electronics class, which Northwestern didn't have, and they had a closed-circuit TV class uh, where they had a camera switcher um, and a helical real real tape machine to record video and playback video and I wasn't exposed to that at Northwestern and I was going to graduate early in my junior year because I finished my prerequisites I had a B plus average and that was what I might plan to do except when the busting situation came along it threw me a curve and I was exposed to electronics and TV at the same time in my in at high point and uh, the light bulb went on when I was standing behind one of the cameras setting up a little special effect I had created um, in the TV class and I said someone's gonna have to fix these cameras one day and the light bulb went on and said hey you know electronics you could do that you like TV and that's where I went I said I'm going into TV and then I realized it was a catch-22 you can't get the job without the uh, experience, and you can't get the experience without the job. So I came up with a game plan that if I volunteer time for things like crews that would come into the area to do uh, video shoots and so forth, I'd get to work with them, and I'd get uh, to know exactly how they function. And about the same time, Capital Center came online, and... I actually went down and talked to one of the camera guys, uh, Chuck Wilfell. He was down on the basketball court with a little roll-around cart with the camera mounted on it. And he actually took me back and introduced me to Sheldon Schimmer and some other of the uh, engineering people. Sheldon Schimmer was the, actually the director. And they allowed me to come in during hockey games and watch them do their productions. I got to learn the different aspects of how things ran and um, I loved it and 
And then uh, when I got that experience, because we were we hadn't built started to build Channel Thirty Two at that time, but I told them that uh, we were going to build Channel Thirty Two. So that's why they really really helped me get a good aspect on um, the whole thing. Okay, let's let's back up a bit. You talked about being bussed over to another high school. Say more about that experience. Um, well, that was during the situation when they were trying to um, racially balance the uh, school segregation so that there were more blacks at High Point. And I, that came out of the blue. And at first I thought, okay, you know, maybe this will be a positive thing. And actually it did come out to be a positive thing because it focused me in a direction that I wanted to go. Because at Northwestern, I was thinking maybe I'll come out and become a pilot, go to Emory Riddle in Florida and, and learn to fly. But then when I got to High Point, and my electronics teacher, he was a IEEE engineer who had come back to teach. And he was teaching me, he was teaching me digital at the time. And in 1973, digital was, um, it was just starting. I was going to say, was anybody doing digital in, in that time period? Um, yeah, well, um, the engineers were, they were, okay. that's because they were learning that. And he was teaching me about AND gates, OR gates, JK flip-flops, and while all the other students are building Heath kits and blowing them up, and I'm going, fixing them for them, oh, you put this diode in backwards, you put this capacitor in backwards, and I was fixing their projects, he's, he's given me a totally different project where I had to build uh, a clock. And all it did was it took 60-cycle sine wave from the wall and turned it into 60-cycle square wave, which is digital. And I had to put the, the, the chips together, wire everything, build the brute power supply, which had a transformer and a bridge rectifier and so forth. And that was my project. And once I built it, then I had to write it up and explain exactly how it functioned and everything. So you realize that um, three quarters of the terms that you're using are a mystery to me, but <laughs> clearly folks who are in the field know what you're talking about. It strikes me as so unusual that you would be a child learning all of this and repairing things. It seems like you had a gift to work in this area. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, but I also had a father who was uh, an electrician. And when my father brought my mother's hi-fi set home, and I looked in the back of it and I saw all of these glowing vacuum tubes, I'm looking at this thinking, well, I wanted to say, where's the transistors? Where's the diodes? Where's the, you know, where's the integrated circuits? But I couldn't form that. All I could say is, there's got to be a better way. That's what I saw in my head, right? There's got to be a better way. And Panasonic used to have a saying, slightly ahead of their time, right? And I kind of took that as my theme. And I always looked way down the road to see what was coming. So one of the things that I did when I got older is that I got popular science, and I used to look at what's new. And there was always something that somebody came up with that just – was so advanced down the road that it wasn't going to be available to the 
public for at least another five or six years. And as I saw things like that developing, I realized, hey, you know, these are just stepping stones to the bigger parts of things. But my father was like the, I guess he was the biggest influence on me because he used to let me hang out with him when he came home from working with Harris Electric back in the day. And we'd go to other people's houses and we'd fish Romex and BX cable through the walls using coat hangers. And I'd be at one side, he'd be at the other side. Remember, I'm five years old. Five years old? Yeah. And I'm... I'm wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You couldn't have been five, at five years old. Some kids still have their, their thumbs in their mouth, and they're trying to figure out, you know, what toy they want to play with next. What do you mean you were helping your dad and you were five years old? Yep, I was five years old, and I was helping my dad do electrical work. Wow. And and uh, I I loved hanging out with my dad. And he would he bought me this little electronic kit. When I think I was eight, seven or eight, and I started building little electronic uh, gadgets, uh, little radios, and I got to learn about resistors and some things from the kit. Then I had some experience with electronics at that point. So that's why when I got into electronics in high school, yeah, it was like I was already there. Yeah, and the my. My electronics teacher, Mr. Novak, he just took me further than the rest of the class because he saw that I understood all the stuff that was going on. And um, getting that kind of experience uh, gave me a totally different insight into how to look at the world from how we were going forward. And then I looked back at my father's time, and, and I looked at my time, how we went from mechanical cash registers uh, to calculators to digital calculators and so on down the road. And in my short period of time, things changed so rapidly. I was like, how, is, how are people keeping up with this? That's amazing. <sighs> Keith, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we will continue with really what is an amazing story. We'll be right back, folks. My name is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to My Talk, and I'm having a conversation with Keith Morgan, broadcast engineer, and so much more. It's, it's so interesting to me that by the time you were in high school, you were in, in some ways able to kind of teach the class a bit. I mean, you were repairing and helping your your fellow students to, to fix what they had not done right. So you really had a, a fairly deep understanding of what was going on. Uh, yes, I did. And when, at that point in time, I never really looked at it from that standpoint. I I would sit down and work with uh, the students in the class, and one one kid actually blew up his. Uh, uh, he had created a strobe, and I helped him fix it. And he said, "Oh, you can have it." And I said, 
you're giving it to me? He said, yeah, you can have it because you fixed it. You might as well have it. And he gave it to me. And I kept keep remembering that. And I'm going, oh, that was nice to him. And working with them and watching the different levels of skills that each one of the students had made me realize that we all have understandings on various levels Mm. of different things. And I felt that the more I knew about as much as I could know about every little aspect of things, I could probably do even better. And that's what gave me the drive to go forward to, um, to learn as much as I could. And like I said, keep looking down the road to see what was coming and learn that before we got there. And when I... I, I, uh, when I started building Channel 32, Jim Watkins was the engineer to help uh, actually put Channel 32 together. And Channel 32 was what? Howard University's TV station. Okay, and that's Howard University in Washington, D.C.? Yes. Okay. And when we started to put that together, um, I had met Jim Watkins um, in my freshman year at Howard University. And I'm walking through one of the studios, and I see this guy in a white lab coat sitting next to a camera with the side open and using an oscilloscope. And I come to him and I say, so what's your problem? He says, I'm not getting any video out of my green tube. And I pick up this, the manual with the schematic, and I start tracing from the green tube back. And I'm saying, did you look at TP test point 16? And... Now, if you've got video there, then I would trace it over to di- uh, diode D3, and then I said, like, transistor TR8. And did he know what you were talking about? Oh, yeah. Jim Watkins was... Okay. <laughs> he was the man. <laughs> yeah. And here I am, a freshman, and I'm talking and reading a schematic, which looked like Greek to anybody else, and I... I think that's what got his attention on me because we, he found this problem, but I had to go to class. And then when we started to build a station, he asked me to be like one of the three students that actually um, helped the other students with their work. And the three of us, uh, Tony Cole, Jeff Cave, and myself, they called us the clones of Watkins because <laughs> <laughs> Jeff and Tony from the School of Engineering, which I could have gone to if my grades hadn't dropped at high point because I was really depressed because of the moves to high point. Yeah. Um, and I, like I said, I had a B-plus average at, high, at uh, Northwestern before I got to high point. So I didn't have the grades to actually get into engineering, which for me... I think that was another blessing in disguise. But I could get into the School of Communications. And at this point in time, my father had actually um, got a position in the physical plant as an electrician because Mr. Harris, who had Harris Electric, he became the head of the physical plant, and he knew how good my father was with electricity. So he hired him as an electrician. And that was the the physical plant at Howard University? Yes. Okay. And and Mr. Harris um, 
encouraged my father to get his master's uh, master electrician's license at Howard, and my father actually retired as a master electrician. Let me ask you a question. You you began working in 1982 at ABC News in Washington, D.C. You are an African-American man. Were there many of you there at that time? Um, at that time, yes. More of us had uh, started to work there. Uh, in the maintenance department where I started, um, we repaired the cameras, tape machines, video switchers, uh, waveform monitors, vector scopes, anything that made video or monitored video um, or manipulated video and audio, uh, we repaired. And so when you say I, maintenance department, you know, for many people, the maintenance department means something very different. But for you, it was maintenance of the electronics that were at right. the station. Okay. I, and I always said electronic maintenance, so people would make a distinguish. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So when anybody said, "Well, what do you do?" and I said, "I work in the electronic maintenance department at ABC." Um, yeah. Uh, when I first got there, I had a colleague, Connie, uh, Kenny Cook. He worked in maintenance. He was there at least a year before I got there. Um, we were the we were only two blocks in Washington maintenance at that point in time. Okay. And then um, James Smith, who was actually a courier for ABC, he, he rode his motorcycle and, and did courier um, things to drop off uh, documents and pick up documents from various locations or pick up videotape that a crew shot at a location and they needed to get back to the headquarters. So that's what he did. He came to work in maintenance um, and I actually taught him a lot of uh, things about cameras and so forth, and he actually became a video op. And to this day, he's still working there, but he does freelance as well for video remotes, and he's actually doing video cameras and uh, what they call painting cameras and setting them up so that they all match and so forth. Tell me, I mean, as we are talking today about what your history has been like, clearly a combination of radio, TV, film, engineering, sort of the whole thing. What kind of changes have you seen socially, politically, or electronically in the industry? Oh, I have seen so much. Working at ABC, I I watched the technology just you know run everybody over. Um, in 1980, 1984, I think it was, I had an Atari computer, and I'd take it out of my locker and I'd work on programs and I'd put it away. And here's my colleagues working on state-of-the-art technology, and they see me working with this computer, and they're going. Why are you wasting your time with that computer? <laughs> and I'm going, <laughs> I couldn't give them an answer at that point. Uh, I, I can give them an answer now. You'll find out in five years. I could have told them that. <laughs> because they couldn't see what was coming. They thought it was you know, just a, a fad, a toy. And, and when I saw what it could do with video, I was like, no, this is going to be a game changer. And... <clears throat> I just I just worked with it. Um, I had another colleague, uh, Jeff Corwin. Jeff Corwin 
came from uh, WJZ in Baltimore, Channel 13. This guy was a genius. He built digital circuits and electronics from scratch. He would put the microprocessor, the support chips, all of this stuff together, breadboard them, and then he would write the code to make it do what he needed it to do and compile it and burn it into the memory of the chip. Oh, my goodness. And he... Yeah, and his devices, he he made a device. When we got Sony D2 machines, which were the first digital tape, real, real tape machines, not real, real, they were, excuse me, cassette tape machines, they didn't talk in the same language as the other machines in terms of machine control. And machine control is when they tell you to tell, uh, push a button to roll a tape remotely, and the machine says, oh, you want me to roll, and it rolls, or it stops rewind, so forth, a cue. The Sony machines didn't talk that way. So Jeff built these interfaces that went into um, between the AMAC, which is the automatic machine control, and the Sony machines, and it would get the signal from the AMAC to tell the machine what to do. Then it would convert it into the language that the Sony machines wanted to see, <clears throat> and they would do what it was told to do. Amazing. Now, I watched him. Yeah, I watched him build this from scratch, and I'm amazed. And I said, Jeff, can you teach me how to write an assembly language? And he said, Well, you've got a 6502 microprocessor in your Atari, like I have in my Commodore 64. And he wrote like this seven-line code, and all it was supposed to do was put A's on the screen. Now, if I wrote it in BASIC, which is what I was first learning, you'd see him writing down the screen. In assembly language, once it was compiled and run, it was so instantaneous, it like popped on the screen instantly. Mm. And then I started writing assembly language programs for the Atari 6502 microprocessor. And then eventually I learned the Motorola 68000, which was used in the Atari ST and the Apple. And I started writing assembly language programs for um, that microprocessor. And... But Jeff, you know, he really impressed me so much that uh, he could do this kind of stuff because when he worked to Jay-Z, he actually created the little game features that they had on some of the shows where they would spin the wheel, it would make all the sounds, the uh, lights, and everything okay. like that. And that's what he did. Uh, but Jeff was good. But when it came to troubleshooting, uh, like in our graphics department, we had Macintoshes, we had uh, PCs, and one of the Macs had a problem, which Jeff was pretty good at Macs, but he couldn't figure out what the problem was, and he said, Keith, can you look at this Mac, because I can't figure out what's going on. And you did. And I, yeah, and I found out it was the memory. And Keith, i got to interrupt you, because we've got to take a break, but when we come back, we will continue. So stay where you are, folks. I will continue the conversation with Keith Morgan. Don't go away. Keith, I, 
like to switch gears a bit as, as we uh, run down on our time. I'm wondering what advice you would offer to folks today who were considering entering the industry today. It, for example, is a college degree important? Do you need, is it more or less important than hands-on training? Are they both equally as important? Well, how would you guide folks today? I would tell them, learn everything that you can learn. If you know somebody in the industry, go see what they do. Learn how they do what they do. Learn what the people around them do. Um, when I had my first summer relief job at WRC, Channel 4, uh, at the end of my summer relief thing, my evaluation, the guy uh, giving my evaluation said, some people said that it appeared you were more interested in other people's jobs than doing your own. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, yeah because <laughs> I'm learning the whole thing. It, what is wrong with that? I was doing my job and there was no problem with it. And the way I got my job at WRC was it was uh, kind of, kind of, it was asked, it, I was asked to do summer relief because the chief engineer, Mac McGill, every place he turned around, he saw me somewhere doing something technical. He came out the river road when we were putting together Channel 32's transmitter. I'm like 10 feet up in the air on top of a Klystron cabinet. He comes walking in, taking a tour, sees me, says, hey, how you doing? How's it going? Uh, one of their news center anchors, she wanted to go back to singing. She borrowed her band's PA system. I set it up for her. I mixed for her. And people in the audience, she invited from WRC. Chief engineer was sitting in the audience. I didn't know it. Uh, and then the, the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, I was picking up our saxophone player who had a job as a page. And I was waiting for him to get off at WRC. And I'm walking through one of the studios and his band playing. And they sounded really great. So I said, let me see what the mix sounds like. So I walk over to the control room door. The band stopped playing. I hear the technical director yelling at the audio guy about them and getting audio out of here for 20 years. I'm going to get it out of here tonight. And the audio guy's talking about this guy's playing too loud. And, this and, that. and I'm going, what is he talking about? He's in charge of the audio. And his audio assistant was this young lady named Taliba Holiday, And she was the engineer for WHUR. She looks up, sees me standing at the door and says, he knows audio. You want him to help? And the technical director said, somebody better help him. <laughs> so I go in and sit down behind this 32-channel audio board. And he's got artist tape with labels of where people are supposed to be. But I asked the technical director, can you get the band to make noise, have the vocals scattered into the microphones, whatever. And I soloed every position, individual position. And his labels were all wrong. I don't work by labels. You don't mix by eyeballs. You mix by ears. So I luckily had the vocals grouped together. He had things that I needed in the right spots. And when they hit, they started. I don't know what it sounded like before, but the technical director said, if the guy from the union comes, push him back in the corner. <laughs> and then afterwards, the director, the producer, uh, the people in the band, they're all coming up saying, man, you made them sound great the people in the band, you made it sound awesome. And I'm like, what the heck did it sound like? <laughs> so the, the, the I, I, I guess the moral of that story is 
get the training, get the formal training, but also be on the spot, learn everything you can about everything that you can. Yeah. Yeah. And the, we had a TV club at Howard and it would meet on Saturdays. We'd learn about uh, waveform monitors, spectroscopes, all of the signals, everything. And we're taking a tour at WRC. And guess who's giving the tour? His chief engineer. We're sitting in his brand new control room. And students are raising their hand, asking questions. And one student says, well, how do you get a job here? And a technical, I mean, the chief engineer says, well, you can get a job here. Like that young man will be working summer relief this summer. And I'm like, I am. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> you know, that was how I got my job offer. Wow, that's amazing. Keith, you've had such an amazing career in the industry. I do hope you'll come back again and tell us some more just about your industry experiences. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so do send an email to me at Pamela at mindtalk.org. That's P-A-M-E-L-A at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And you can go to the mindtalk.org website and find out about the free weekly giveaway. You can sign up for the program guide. And you can also learn about all the other platforms, probably your favorite one, where you can pick up Mindtalk as well. Thank you again so much for joining us. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.